What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Do you dream of a healthier life, but education feels out of reach? Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School's Certified Natural Health Professional Program is the perfect entry point to gain foundational knowledge to empower yourself, your family, and your community to live healthier lives. Turn your passion into a career. Visit trinityschool.org for more info now. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste, or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products, because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Hey everybody, welcome to Creature Feature, the show where we ask, who are the real animals, humans or uh, animals? Join us today as we look at some of the most mind-blowing, most important, and also weirdest scientific studies that have been done on rats. Discover this and more as we answer the age-old question, is there eternal sunshine in the spotless rat mind? So, rats, they've been long maligned by humans. They're synonymous with sneaky crooks and snitches, they're considered disgusting little harbingers of plagues, but on September 20th, 2015, something happened that caused a paradigm shift in public opinion. Pizza Rat. Pizza Rat was that intrepid subway rat who dragged a huge slice of pizza down the stairs. This little hero captured our hearts. He's the classic American rags to riches or, well, rat to pizza story. But rats are deeper and more complex than sewer nightmares or pizza entrepreneurs. They're wildly successful urban survivors, highly social, intelligent, and have been the backbone of a huge wealth of scientific research. You've likely heard it in the news. Such and such new study has been conducted on rats, or some medication has been found to be effective in rats. It's a grim truth. In order for medicine to advance, rats are often on the front lines. It's a complex moral issue that can't be boiled down to a brief statement, but this is a podcast, so here, here it goes. I love rats and mites and rodents in general, but I think they deserve respect, but I also super appreciate having modern medicine, and I think researchers are doing extremely important work. So today we're going to look at some of this rat science, both to appreciate it from a standpoint of immense scientific accomplishment, as well as taking the point of view of what it would be like to be a rat undergoing these studies. With me today is Pulavi Ganalan, a biomedical engineer and an amazingly funny and talented stand-up comedian. Welcome. Thank you for having me. So just briefly, what do you do in your research? I'll, I'll kind of get into that more later on. but Yeah, um, I'm currently a PhD student at the University of Southern California in Ted Berger's lab. He works on the hippocampus and hippocampal studies. And our lab is in the process of creating a computational model of the rat hippocampus. Um, and we 
my work within that is very uh, specific. Um, I'm trying to characterize the different neuron types within the rat hippocampus because there are a bunch of different kinds. And in order to do that, I'm working on using a genetic algorithm, which I don't know. Have you heard of genetic algorithms before? Not really, no. <laughs> They're really interesting. Um, evolutionary algorithms um, and genetic algorithms are based on how like populations work. Mm. So like in human populations, you have a parent generation and then they breed, they make children, those breed, they make children, you know, and as um, you go down the line, certain things are shifted and changed according to mutation and crossover with the genes, right? So they use uh, individuals in the population uh, as they're uh, actually computational models. So each mm -hmm. individual is a computational model and the inputs change based on which individual they are in the population. So you have a set of models at the top and then you determine how far off you want their their uh, inputs to be when they have children and then the models, the computational models breed and have kids. I see. So Kind of like... Uh I mean, probably this is very oversimplified, but there was that the game of life kind of very early computer game where you would put in a bunch of parameters and mm -hmm. then you have these these kind of competing pixel microbes uh, out there and breeding and competing with each other. And it would run the program and you would see like uh, the population density of these different sort of like programmed in organisms. Uh, yeah, except so each um, each program is actually like treated like an individual in the population. Yeah. So it's like it's just finding a way to explore um, different inputs and whether the outputs match what we want um, with through mimicking the diversity in a in like a population of organisms. Right. That's super cool. Yeah, it's really fun. Um, but it is very, uh, you know, deep. Right. <laughs> deep right. In. So with the with the whole like with all the rat experiments and stuff, I'm like very focused. You're, on. Yeah. You're focused on this one specific. Yeah. Uh, Thing which I, which I mean that's that's kind of the reality of what you have to do when you're when you're doing these um, more like the more uh, precise as we'll see like in more historical rat studies it's very sort of on the surface like you put a rat in the maze and see what he does which I've also done before oh really yeah cool. I as biomedical engineering encompasses like any engineering applied to the healthcare field which is a problem in getting jobs because right. people don't know what we do what skill right. set we have because it can range from working with animals working with cells and microscopy to, um, you know, m more mechanical engineering, electrical engineering to computational stuff. And so and I've actually been through that whole process. So right, I've gone right. from, you know, working with animals and cells. And then I worked on neural probes for a while, which was more mechanical electrical engineering. And now I'm doing computational. Right. Um, and part of the reason that I wanted to go to computational was because I was tired of working <laughs> in a wet lab, basically. Yeah. yeah. Um, because in, I'd started in like middle school working in labs, so yeah. I was kind of over it. Yeah, is it is it the smell or just the general environment? Because I've worked in a, a monkey lab before, and for me, it was the smell that was like the worst. It was. Um, do you know what's weird? Is I like when a, a lab smells like mice. Really? Yeah, because I'm used to it, <laughs> and I'm like, ah, this smells like science. But um, no, it it has to do with um, just the the type of work. Because the behavioral experiments are take a long time. They're very right. imprecise. Same with, you know, cells. It can take a, a while to get the results that you want. And I just felt, you know, I learned a lot in my time. And I felt like I wanted something more computationally challenging. I wanted to acquire those skills. Right. Um, and 
before I right before my PhD, I was working in a completely different field in infectious diseases and mm. I was like carrying around vials of HIV and like oh. nine liters of human plasma and I was like yeah. tired of the manual labor associated yeah. with it. Yeah, because I imagine that's a very like a lot of protocol must be involved. It was a lot of protocol. I was very happy to be in the biotech industry to learn all of the pro- protocol and like how sales works and stuff like that because right. in academia you're just kind of you're in a lab. You're just you're very focused, focused on the yeah. yeah. Um, and so you don't really understand the like practical application of how this like impacts people and how it like reaches the general public, the solutions that you find in lab. Um, so I'm glad I got that kind of general information, but yeah, I was done caring, <laughs> like having to f- wash my clothes irrationally yeah. to feel clean at night. Like <laughs> I was an assistant in a lab where, um, this is nothing compared to, to having to carry infectious diseases, but it was a psychology study where we had to trick them into giving us like saliva samples or not trick them into giving us saliva samples because that would be illegal. But uh, we <laughs> we took saliva samples for no reason because we wanted them to think we were studying their saliva. It's like yeah, you lie control. a lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You lie a lot in like these behavioral studies. But like so I'd have to collect this saliva from them and immediately like throw it, throw out. it out, like wash it out like we didn't need it. But it, and it just felt so it was so disheartening to be like, all right, here's this spit. And it's like people it's hard to fill a little vial with spit. You know, you think yeah. that it'd be easy, but it's not because then they they had to fill it all the way up. And then like, you know, got this like spitty tube that it's like, I don't need this. Yeah, I, I don't. It's it's going directly in the trash. But you can tell they've worked very hard on giving you the a nice saliva sample. And they're, you know, it does feel like a lot of um that those physical you know, like wet lab t- uh, experiments require a lot of things that are very like tedious mm-hmm. and menial and mm-hmm. like disheartening um be <laughs> but is necessary for the work to be yes. done yes. um so somebody has to do it and a lot of times it's like grad students yeah <laughs> <laughs> but for yeah that's why with the computational stuff i'm like okay i'm like i have a goal and i'm like trying all these yeah. things and it is really hard and it takes a lot longer than people think cuz computational stuff generally is faster because computers are faster than physical but systems but it still takes time to run a program right it, and then and then there's so many there's so much like debugging and troubleshooting right. and none of that matters you can run it for hours and hours and hours and come back and it's like nope didn't yeah didn't work which is what's happening right now oh I'm sorry (laughs) (laughs) but yeah when you think rat studies you probably picture a rat in a maze obviously the wealth of research goes beyond this classic trope but you're also not wrong some of the most important studies on rat behavior have utilized a maze and mazes are great for examining learning spatial memory and a baseline for measuring performance cognition and drug studies But what would it be like to be a rat in a maze with no GPS to help you? The labyrinth is often used as a horror action device. The idea of being stuck in a maze winding up trapped is scary and disorienting. Let's talk about a real-life labyrinth that is more bewildering and terrifying than any sort of laboratory maze. The miles and miles of catacombs that lurk underground. Last year, two teenagers got lost in the Paris catacombs. This is no hokey corn maze. There are over 200 miles of tunnels, some of which had been constructed as quarries during the time of the Romans. In the 1700s, tunnels were constructed as ossuaries, a resting place for human skeletal remains, due to the crisis of overflowing cemeteries. These catacombs would come to hold the bones of over 6 million people. Only a small fraction of the tunnels are open to the public, but that doesn't keep people from venturing into the dark, forbidden areas. 
Needless to say, this is a very bad idea. So imagine being those two lost teenagers in the catacombs. It's dark, dank, cold, and you're utterly lost. How would you get back to the entrance? By memory? There's not enough light to see landmarks, and even if there were, there's no map to orient yourself to. How do you know which tunnel you've been down, which skull-lined corner you've already retraced? Humans, unlike butterflies or cows, don't have a built-in compass. We don't have the echolocation of bats or the noses of moles who can see the world through vibrations. We're pretty pathetic navigators when compared to the animal kingdom. The teenagers are lost for three days, although to them, who knows how long it felt. Without diurnal information from the light of the sun, it's very hard to keep track of the passage of time. And according to authorities, they were only found thanks to search and rescue dogs. The dog's ability to track scent was crucial. Without the help of other animals, humans are ill-prepared to navigate dark, fractal-like passageways. There have been urban myths of people dying in the catacombs. There's a story of Masha, a woman who allegedly ventured into the Odessa catacombs, got lost, and died of thirst. There's no proof of this story being true or Masha even being a real person, so it's likely just a legend that taps into our fears. However, there was one life that may very likely have been claimed by the Paris catacombs. In 1793, Philibert Asper, a Parisian man, descended into the catacombs and was never seen again until 1804 when his body was discovered in the tunnels. So, let's find out if rats fare better at mastering the maze than our poor friend Philibert Asper. So, I want to ask you to join me on an imagination journey, which I like to do on the podcast. We ride on down to Imagination Station. Um, what would you do to survive being lost in the catacombs? Oh, man, I would die immediately. (laughs) I'm so weak. I would, I think the main thing is preserving oxygen and like bodily resources, right? So like Mm -hmm. water would probably, water and oxygen. Um, I'd start collecting my pee immediately. That's smart. Yeah. Yeah. So how do you, uh, What I feel like there are tricks to like saving oxygen. Yeah, I mean... I would, I would stay like, I would stop wandering around for yeah. one because like the more you wander, the more likely you're going to get disoriented and get further and further away. Like the minute you know you're lost, you stop. You yeah. do not keep moving uh, unless you're pretty sure you know exactly like where the exit is. And you probably don't though. There's a huge chance that you get disoriented again. Yeah. Um. So I would like probably just stay there and uh, like the, the, Main threats seem to be uh, dehydration uh, and exposure uh, to the the cold of the catacombs. So oh, starting yeah. to get um, hypothermia. Um, so I would try to keep warm. Again, immediately start saving my pee. Like you know, that's like the first thing you do. Yeah. Um, hopefully, you've got like a water bottle or something. You could uh, start. Uh, that's the first thing I do up. every morning. I know. <laughs> <laughs> like I just save my pee just in case. Just in you case. never, you never know. It's a waste yeah. too. Don't be wasteful. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, yeah, it's it's scary. It's one of the scary things to me, though, the idea of of being in the dark and not being able to navigate, like not knowing where you are and just getting further and further into a maze. Yeah, 
That's yeah, that's definitely terrifying. Do you do the thing like <laughs> I grew up in Utah and they're like addicted to corn mazes. Mm. Do you do the thing where you put your right hand on the wall and you like go or mm. do you is that a thing? That's interesting. So the idea being if you put your right hand, you're not going to get turned around at least you, you'll Yeah. you'll still it'll still be left right. You'll have down. Yeah, or like you'll know where you've like been. Like you only go right so at some point you'll get out. Yeah, that's interesting. I want. I don't know. Like, I want. If you did that in the catacombs, though, you you'd just be like rubbing a bunch of skulls because they actually yeah. line the they line the corridors with human skulls. So you're just like, I feel like maybe just you, like clanging along, <laughs> along <laughs> these <laughs> teeth. <laughs> yeah, just like just as you're walking along. Um, yeah, I, or maybe you could just get to know some of the skulls really well, like really feel them, feel their facial structure. Like, yeah, oh, weird. like this is Bob the skull who's and got a weird missing tooth or like count their teeth. And that's how you like get like back. Like a landmark. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or count how many skulls are on each wall. Um, I yeah, feel like that's... like you won't go insane immediately. No, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you, you will. That'll be okay. You'll be fine. Like, it's it's just like, hey, it's just me and all my friends who are skulls. It's like the, We're fine. several Wilsons. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I feel, yeah, I feel like you have to preserve your energy, your pee and your ox. Well, yeah, I, I keep saying oxygen, but I don't know how right. big the catacombs are. I, I think, like telling you I think it's, I think you would die from uh, exposure. I don't think you would necessarily, I think there's enough air to okay. breathe in, in most of the, I, I don't, yeah, I'm not sure if it's, uh, I, I think the airflow is, is okay enough. Yeah. It's not like the death zone in like the um up uh, mount everest where mm. every minute because like there you will just eventually yeah uh, die of uh air sickness yeah, oxygen yeah, yeah. deprivation which yeah. have you seen the new there's like these new um photos of like the really long line to get to the peak of mount everest a lot of those people died right yeah yeah because they're just waiting and eventually y- you don't you can't live there your body is not meant to live at that both the temperature and the main problem being like the lack of oxygen so if you wait too long, you just you will die. Yeah, there were a lot of like uh, dead bodies because there were too many people up there. Yeah, yeah, it's ugh, it's so creepy. Like I can't imagine the, just like because they were talking about people just stepping over dead bodies to get yeah. to the peak, and like the peak itself is the size of like two ping pong tables, and so everyone's like cramming in to get their pictures, and it's just ugh, it's what so a creepy. statement on capitalism, huh? I know, <laughs> I know. Just ugh, it, it's and. and yeah, just like, you just got to get that Instagram up, oh, dead body. <laughs> Did you see they're taking pictures, like influencers are taking pictures at Chernobyl now? Yes, I saw that. I saw that. That's uh, one of them like popped a butt out. That was. Oh, yeah. Good. She was hella naked. Yeah. <laughs> it was crazy. Um, yeah. It That place is still radioactive, right? Yep. Yep. <laughs> Well, so one of the most important early rat studies was in 1937 uh, by P.T. Young. It's actually pretty – have you heard of this one? Yeah. It's uh, it's actually kind of not as well known because it's it, – it, weirdly, it didn't get as much attention. It didn't get as many uh, publications, um, but it's – uh, one of physicist Richard Feynman's favorite, that old creepy guy. Hey, <laughs> he was huge in my, I went to Caltech for undergrad. Oh, yeah? And he was like a huge person at Caltech. So yeah. we heard a lot of stories about him, but everybody like 
he was like a physics right. god. He was a carouser, right? Like kind of a womanizer. He was a womanizer. I hadn't heard anything inappropriate. Right. Not, but I just heard yeah. that he was like not un- a charmer. Yeah, not non-consensual carousing. Consensual carousing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, that's why I wouldn't, ca- I wouldn't call it creepy, but it, it was, right. uh, he was getting it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so he, he loved this study, this 1937 rat study. Um he described it like this. I'm just going to quote him because he puts it in, it's a somewhat confusing study and he phrases it in a way that is a lot clearer than I think I could do. So quote, uh, this researcher, he had a long corridor with doors all along one side where the rats came in and doors all along the other side where the food was. He wanted to see if he could train the rats to go in at the third door down from wherever he started them off. The question was, How did the rats know, because the corridor was so beautifully built and so uniform, that this was the same door as before? So basically, you know, this researcher is saying, like, wherever door you come out of, the food reward is going to be three doors down to the left from where you started. Yeah. But instead, the rats, no matter where they were in the maze, wherever they were put, like door number one, two, three, four, whatever, they would always go to the door where the food was last. And they knew where that was. And um, uh, the researchers trying to eliminate all of the clues of, like, where they were in the maze. So he uh, repainted the doors so the texture of the paint strokes Mm -hmm. were the same because he was like, maybe they can tell by the texture of the door, but that didn't work. The rats still found that original door. Um, He thought maybe they were smelling it. That's a pretty reasonable assumption. But he masked all the scent with these really powerful chemicals every time, so there was no way. Um, So that didn't change anything either. Um, and he also like covered the entire maze up because he was thinking, well, maybe they're orienting themselves like to the lights in the lab. So the lights on the ceiling mm-hmm. sort of like, you know, with their little tiny rat sextants, like going like, oh, th- this <laughs> yeah. light is here. And like, um, but that didn't have any effect either. And finally he thought, well, maybe like the sound the floor makes, like they're, they're mm. using some kind of like, they're hearing differences in the sound the floor makes. So he filled the entire um, maze with sand and that masked the sound that their footsteps made and that they couldn't find it anymore and that was Ooh. that was the thing um, and what's so important about that study uh, besides the fact that you can't you can't trick a rat like it's so crazy that they're just like they could find it no matter what and it was just this one slight like they could hear I guess like some slight difference in the way their feet like maybe yeah. it was more hollow there or something um, but uh, it, it's so not just in terms of rat intelligence, but the crazy lengths you have to go to to eliminate all of these different uh, outside environmental factors in a study. Because uh, that's, that's the hardest thing about behavioral studies yes. is that you don't know if what you're getting is accurate. You just have to say, like, to the best of my knowledge, it is because these animals, ha- there's so many variables. Like, wasn't there recently... Um, a study about how mice react differently to experimenters that are male versus female. Oh, interesting. Yeah, there. I think there's that. There's also... Um, they're, like, scared of men, yeah. and so they act differently when they are... And so if you ever have an experiment that requires multiple researchers, yeah. it has to be the same. Consistent. Yeah. I think there was also um, a recent... Uh, finding about, like, gender bias in terms of the rat's actual gender. So... Uh, female rats are often not used in certain medical studies because yeah. of their um, their uh, menstrual cycles uh, are thought to like, well, that's an inconsistent um, influence the influence. outcome. But there's some concern that 
you know, this may that kind of the same sort of differences in terms of their hormones. I mean, human women have that too. So what? Crazy. <laughs> I know women are crazy. What with their menstrual lunacy, normal bodies. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And also the fact that everything's modeled after like male animals in right. everything. <laughs> it's like this is great. Even the rats have to be dudes. I just like how like the solution to um, the fact that. Female, female rats, rats have those pesky uh, ovaries is just like, oh, we won't study yeah. mm-hmm. as much. Yeah. Yeah. Did you, this is also like a really random like animal fact, but there was, um, you know how they use like messenger, messenger pigeons in like mm-hmm. the wars and yeah. stuff? There was one, I think in World War II that like was given like this medal because it saved like 200 people and like it did all these like crazy things. And it's in the spy museum in D.C., and they have a whole section on these pigeons. And uh, so it's this like <laughs> pigeon of valor, <laughs> right? And it's pigeon it's lauded for its work and they keep misgendering it as male. Oh. Like indifferent. Interesting. <laughs> it's a female pigeon. Yeah, yeah. Behind every great male pigeon is a it's actually pigeon. it is actually just a female pigeon yeah. though. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's that's inferior that's always frustrating the uh uh, the assumption of of cert- like the assumption that like the more um, I don't know physically capable animals are males. It's often the females that are. Uh, we just endure. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think what you're saying is we do need to bring feminism to pigeons. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I feel like we could learn a lot. <laughs> we would. We could learn from each other. Who would learn the most? Humans are pigeons. Humans from pigeons. We'd learn more. I from feel like pigeons. we would. Yeah, for sure. So, <laughs> so back to rats. Um, the uh, pigeons of the, the ground. The, the pigeons of the yes, the pigeons <laughs> of the sewers. The pigeons of the feet is what I was gonna say, yeah. but then I realized that doesn't really make sense. <laughs> um, so, in more contemporary science, our ability to be precise has gotten much more high tech. So. Um, as you well know, uh, researchers can now use neurotechnology to record rat brains and give nearly real-time readout where the rats think they are in a maze. So, you know, the, the technology of being able to put a bunch of uh, sensors, uh, like you kind of implant it into the rat brain and then it gives a feed out, that's not super new, but the more real-time aspect of it where you can, it's instead of taking a lot of time for that, data to be interpreted and processed, it's mm-hmm. becoming more and more to the point where you can um, basically see where the rat thinks it is in the maze as it's in the maze at the same time as where it is in the maze. That's like, um, like have you heard of uh, Carl Deseroth and Mm-mm. optogenetics? Uh, I have heard of uh, optogenetics, but have not heard of this specific guy. He... Um, figured out a way to use light to control the yes. brain. Yes, yes. Yeah. Actually, actually... May- I say I don't know who this guy is, but I may actually know who this guy is. Yeah, he's at Stanford. He's That field became revolutionized because you could basically trigger different cells to activate right. using light in real time. Yeah. Um, and that was a huge breakthrough. And then he had another breakthrough later um, with clear, which was turning the brain clear. But <laughs> <laughs> but optogenetics was a, it w- was very uh, like vital to the yeah. field. and. There, you know, there are a lot of animal studies with that. Where yeah, like, we're actually going to talk about one oh, okay. in just a bit. But no, no, that's it's good because like it is a 
uh, when I when I was looking at it, it, was, it was a, took a little while for it to sink in what it actually was, because mm-hmm. um, it's you genetically modify the animal beforehand mm-hmm. such that its uh, neurons can be manipulated with light, and then yeah. you do the study. Uh, but we'll, we have a pretty fun study that that uses that technique. Um, so uh, <laughs> one thing I wonder about when ra- rats are running through mazes, is it's always like it's easy to anthropomorphize like that they feel frustration or yeah. um but there is a uh there is a study that looks at whether they feel regret for bad choices. Oh yeah. Um and of course with any of these behavioral studies regret is a very um you know kind of uh amorphous concept. Yeah. Uh, it's, they, they probably look at like what lights up in the brain. Right, right? exactly. Yeah. So to say that it is exactly regret is that's a little subjective, but it's like how do each of us see blue? Right, exactly. We don't know. Um, but you know, to the extent that we can figure that out, they've uh, they did a study, a University of Minneapolis study that measured brain responses in rats as they navigated a prize maze. Um, the rats basically had to gamble which door to choose. Um, if the rats choose wrong, uh, they had to wait longer for the food re- food rewards. So, uh, and then they had like a audio cue that basically would tell them like uh, they were trained to associate different audio cues with different lengths of waiting times like uh, I'm, I'm at, when I was reading this study I just imagined the Jeopardy song like playing and they're like yeah, oh yeah. man I have to wait like two minutes for my food yeah, yeah. Um, but it was like certain tones and then one tone would mean you have to wait 45 seconds one tone mean you wait 60 seconds so obviously they want the food now yeah. so longer wait times equals sadder rat just like me when I'm waiting for like Uber Eats to <laughs> yeah, um, so th- those the regret was more when they had to wait longer. Yes. So what would happen is they would go to a prize door, and it, it, they weren't actual doors, but it's like the it's a little bit like weird to explain. They're like these like spokes in the maze where they like yeah. if they activated it, then the waiting period would happen. But yeah, so they would approach one, they'd hear this tone where they'd have to wait like thirty seconds. They're like, oh, I don't want to wait thirty seconds. So they go to the next door and they're like, well, actually, at this door, you have to wait a full minute. And then they're like, ah, damn it. I should have stuck with that first door where I only had to wait 30 seconds. So they would look back at the first door and the um, their brain pattern would light up with the same pattern that they had when they initially approached that first door and made the decision to leave that first door. Mm -hmm. Um, So uh, what the the researchers interpreted this as showing like they look back and consider this old choice yeah. and ha- maybe as a form of regret of, of like, oh, I should have done that. Yeah. Um, it's obviously, it's hard to say what the rat feels in the moment. Yeah. If it is regret, um, if they're, you know, what rat regret feels like, but yeah, I, I can, I can buy it. I think they could in some, you know, different way. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like they could. Um, they're, I will say, like after having worked with rats, they're like really smart, and I like really love them yeah. <laughs> as animals, and they're very easy to work with. Um, and so you do when you're talking about like anthropomorphizing them, you totally do that. Yeah, <laughs> like, there were so many rats named Pinky in the Brain, <laughs> like at the place that I was working. At, yeah, and, like so many, even a couple of mine were named that. Um, there is um, the second thing was there is. I remember when I was interviewing for master's programs, there was a guy at Rice who was working on a really interesting study um, with with erasing their memories. We're going to talk about that. Are we that. talking yes, about that? Yes, Is that yes. A, a I don't know if it's the same one, but uh, we'll talk about that. And if it's a different study, please tell me That's about that so one. That's so funny. Okay. Uh, this is great. It. This is great. So maybe rats can show regret, but can they show empathy? 
Would a rat help you out in a dire maze situation or help you escape the catacombs? Well, I wouldn't bet my life on it, but there may be some hope. In 1998, a pet rat named Fido reportedly saved a family from their burning home. As smoke started to fill their house, Fido escaped his cage. But instead of getting out of there like, well, a rat off a sinking ship, Fido went upstairs and scratched on the bedroom door. The scratching awoke the family, and they managed to escape. The kicker? The family had a dog who did absolutely nothing to help. So everyone survived and thanked Fido the rat for saving them. So I guess Fido uh, kind of beats the dog in terms of the family's favorite pet now. But in fact, is this actually empathy? A study in 2014 looked at the rescue behavior in rats. When placed in a new environment, they'll often try to scratch at a tube in which another rat is trapped in an apparent attempt to save them. However, the researchers concluded that the behavior may be motivated more by a desire for social contact and comfort rather than an actual attempt to, quote, rescue their companion. The rat seemed to touch the tube regardless of whether their touching actually freed the rat, seeming instead to be interested in interacting with the trapped rat. So maybe Fido's heroism was due to his desire to seek reassurance and friendship, but that's almost even cuter. Well, rats, we're gonna have to take a quick break, but we'll be back soon with some more rat tales. Ooh, getting hooked on cocaine. These are rat tales. Do do do. Do you dream of a healthier life, but education feels out of reach? Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School's Certified Natural Health Professional Program is the perfect entry point to gain foundational knowledge to empower yourself, your family, and your community to live healthier lives. Turn your passion into a career. Visit trinityschool.org for more info now. Asking the right questions can greatly impact your future, especially when it comes to your finances. So if you're looking for a financial advisor you can trust, certified financial planner professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org. Had enough of those supplements that leave you feeling nothing? Symbiotica is your solution to great-tasting all-natural supplements that actually work. Crafted with premium plant-based ingredients, their products have no seed oils, fillers, or artificial nonsense. It's just pure goodness in every pouch. Try them out and actually feel the difference today. Visit Symbiotica.com and use code IHEART for 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Again, that's 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Go to Symbiotica.com. That's C-Y-M-B-I-O-T-I-K-A dot Rats and humans actually share a lot of qualities. We're both mammals, highly intelligent and social. And here's another interesting quirk. Rats and humans tend to forget distracting memories. A 2018 scientific review discussed how rats and humans both have the ability to selectively forget information or memories that are distracting and perhaps non-beneficial. A study found that the act of recalling certain memories in humans replaces related but tangential memories, actively destroying any memory that interferes with our recall of the search for memories. So basically, if you have any memory that gets in the way of you trying to remember something related, those memories are destroyed, bulldozered. Rats have this habit as well. When introduced to new objects, if one object is given more importance, like they're trained to keep remembering it, they'll quickly forget about the other object much more quickly than in control conditions where both objects are of equal importance. 
So in a sense, we're constantly doing eternal sunshine of the spotless mind on ourselves, erasing memories that are undesirable. But are there more extreme science fiction-y things going on in rat research? So back to imagination station. Do you think you would all like you have you seen Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind? I actually tweeted a joke about it like yesterday oh, really? or the day before. I was like crazy how in how in that movie uh, they totally erased Jim Carrey's memories of how vaccines work. <laughs> weird. Oh, that is weird. <laughs> Somehow germ theory got mixed up in his his romance. Yeah. Um, did you see Jessica Biel just came out as anti-vax? I think she's taking it back. But uh, Oh, really? I don't know. Backpedaling on that. Yeah, I think because she got a lot of backlash. Yeah. So she's introducing a sort of um, something that will, run, that will run counter to the negativity that's coming in, that'll sort of attach itself to the negativity and kind of destroy that negativity. You what know what mean? I mean? Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. yeah She's yeah. like trying to like detect it. Right. And then get rid it. of it well, like, to like protect herself. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So it's like good. It's like good to kind of train her PR team to basically know how to protect her against certain threats to yeah. her popularity. And then later when this happens again, they'll actually be really good at protecting her again yeah. in another PR nightmare. Amazing how that, yeah. how that works. <laughs> That was your vaccine joke, you guys. <laughs> we're we're a hip we're a hip cool podcast. Um, I, I was just like normal heaven. Your children are going to <laughs> normal heaven. I feel I don't know. I feel so bad for those kids. Now those kids are eighteen and getting vaccinated themselves. They're rebelling by getting vaccinated. Yeah, it's and so cool. They're like talking about how stupid their parents are. <laughs> They are correct. The fact that they survived is like crazy to me. I know. Surviving all the way to 18 with no vaccinations. Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah, it's I love that. It's like the rebellious thing to do now is to be healthy. Go to the doctor, get your vaccines. Yeah. To like be be healthy in that way. People are yeah. rebelling by like going to therapy. Yeah. People like kids are rebelling now by being politically active and like holding activist rallies and getting. Yeah. I mean, that's. Kind of the been the case is, for a while. Yeah, yeah, that's the thing is I think young people are maligned, but I think they are also the, they've always been responsible young good people. I mean, there's yeah. always there's always the dabbing, you know, there, the, <laughs> da, dabbing. There's some form of dabbing in every generation, and that's fine as long as they're getting vaccinated. <laughs> um, so, uh, so would you do Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind on yourself? Like, are, like would you ever um, want to like erase? Um, either bad habits or bad memories. Like. No, because it is a vaccination against future right. pain. That's a really good way of thinking of it. I've never thought of it that way. If I did not have the information I have now, I'd be making so many more mistakes. That is such a good point. Yeah, because it, it that is basically what memory is for, to yeah. uh, train ourselves to be better at doing life in the future that's why you remember um emotionally traumatic moments yes uh, traumatic moments in general yes. more than other moments right because like what's more important to remember eating a sandwich and everything was fine or that time you took a huge bite of a sandwich and you almost choked to death alone in your own apartment yeah but i think i think also it works the opposite way where when it is too yes. bad you black out yes and i think that that is also protective Yes, that is true. Yeah. Yeah. Where where it's like if it's if it's just generally unhelpful, um, but it's like super unpleasant, 
we we kind of prune those memories as well. Yeah, like I just like I think of like extremely traumatic moments right. where people like forget. They'll they'll disassociate. Yeah, 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 they disassociate, and it is t- like a survival technique. Yeah, because it's not not really helping. Like if you're just being tormented at some yeah. point, you're, it's not you're not learning anything that's helpful. It's just hurting There's pain. Yeah, there's also that um, thing of where like children, like toddlers and younger. Uh, in emergencies, they fall asleep. Oh, that's so that's so weird because that's almost like um, the the what what's it called the catatonia and um, like when you startle those goats and those, those goats. cat kittens yeah. that have that disorder where um, I think it's like catatonia myopia or something, something like that. Yeah, um, where like you clap and then they fall over because like they're startled and somehow they don't actually. I don't think they fall unconscious. It's just all their muscles like spasm and they fall over. Yeah. They, yeah, so, but it is, I think it is like a protective thing for the parents right. because then the child won't cry. Oh, interesting. So it is, it is like the, the best state for a child to take a baby when something bad is happening is for them to sleep soundly. Yes, yes. So because, that their parents can right. like be quiet and like take right. them and rescue them. Yeah. That is so interesting. It's like, like they're going into sleep mode so they can be easily transported. Save, <laughs> save yes. their energy. <laughs> in, yeah. Airplane mode. So I want to talk about eternal sunshine of spotless rat minds. Yeah. Um, just imagine Jim carrying that movie as a giant rat. Or do we have to imagine? Oh, God. I, I don't hate him that much. I do hate him for the, the anti-vax stuff. I don't though. like the anti-vax stuff, but as a comedian, he's like such a hero. <laughs> yeah, he's, he's, a great, he's a great dramatic actor, too. Just he's don't amazing. talk about medicine, dude. So rats, who I'm starting to like him more and more, the more... More they're, I learn about them. They're and amazing. In some ways, they're better than people. But uh, the, yeah. there's um, researchers at the University of Pittsburgh set up a Pavlovian experiment involving rats. Now, I think most people kind of know what, what the Pavlovian response is. But just a quick uh, refresher is uh, the study where you ring a bell, dog gets food. Now, every time you ring the bell, the dog drools everyone. I think every pet owner knows what this is. You know, the, any like slight like package crinkling like the quietest crinkling of any package and my dog just like zzz, bo- bo, like she's there suddenly there appears yeah like magic um so in this study researchers got rats addicted to cocaine <laughs> which happens a lot in uh in rat research um but uh so they were given an audiovisual cue that heralded heralded their cocaine hit um, so, you know, a bell would ring and they'd get some cocaine. They start wearing leather jackets. Like, <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so researchers found that there's increased activity between the thalamus and amygdala associated with the rat's anticipation of the cocaine. Uh, eventually just seeing or hearing the cue made their brains go bonkers. Like their brains were like, yeah, it's cocaine time. Um, and so, uh, the researchers used optogenetics to selectively turn off the neurons associated with their drug cravings. So we talked about this a little bit earlier. It's the process of genetically modifying neurons so, such that they're uh, sensitive to light. So they'll, the lab will create this little rat baby that, and their neurons have been modified such that you can, uh, kind of implant these, these lights into their brains and then once you uh, turn on a light or turn off a light, it affects the functioning of the neurons. Um, uh, do you know, like, do you know anything about like how they how they fa- found that like they could do this, like how the genetics of? Uh, I used to remember the history of it, but 
I mean, uh, a lot of these experiments that are run in general are run on genetically modified animals. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that part, I think, like, that's not unusual. Right, that's not novel. Um, but I, I used to know the history of it because it was so captivating and it was, right. um, but it's been a while since I looked at it. Um, but they, I guess they looked, I, I mean, it had to be like a light sensitive um mechanism right um and so i think i forget how they attached it let me i don't know but uh but yeah it was like it was a, a huge discovery right and, like everybody who is anywhere near biology knows carl deseroth right because you can then um do sort of selective quote-unquote brain damage that's actually not damaging the brain like you can turn it back off it's not is that right? Like, it's not a permanently... Um... It's literally like you could shine a light and then it changes uh, right. the activation of whatever the target is. Yeah, like um, instantly. And, and then it can also be turned back off. You can look at YouTube videos of this happening. Oh, cool. Um, yeah. So they, I mean, channel rhodopsin and all these rhodopsin um, proteins are have been known to be light sensitive. Um, and so I think he knew that and then you know, like figured out a way to control um, these neurons. And so like putting it together is, uh, I think, the the key. The, yeah. Like <laughs> the idea that he could use these uh, proteins yeah. in that way was the big, the big, big leap. That's so cool. So uh, so they had these, uh, these rats that, and they use the optogenetics to um, turn off the, uh, the, the, uh, um, uh, parts of the brain that that part like between the thalamus and the amygdala uh, where that would show excitement every time that the cue would happen so like they have the the like bell rings they're like expecting cocaine they get really excited then they turn a light on you know like like turn off those neurons uh, and then suddenly like they were able to completely remove the rat's excitement for cocaine so um, just like no, like they would play that like, hey, cocaine's a coming bell. And then the rats showed no response, like no response in the brain. Uh, like because like beforehand, their brains were going absolutely crazy, like totally firing, like super excited for that hit of cocaine. And then now just like nothing, just like totally cool and fine. And it's really kind of a cool thing because um, especially like we're, you know, as maybe we start to shift the paradigm of how we see addiction as like a medical issue and not like a moral failing, um, you know, the research into how you treat addiction is really important. And this is, I mean, it's way far away from ever being able to be applied to humans because we don't have like, we haven't started like having um, optogenetic babies that, yeah. you know, where you can turn human brains off with lights. But it is... Um, it, it it does show that they're... that's a Black Mirror episode. Yeah, I know. For sure. <laughs> oh, they should do that. It's like, what well, if you turn your light off? It's turn the light off and the brain turned off. British. Oi, oi! What if you turn the light on and like, your brain just turned off? That that show is really good. It like, is coming from a person who like worked on neural probes. Like, yeah, it's so fun to yeah. like watch. Yeah. But, yeah, yeah. So I can't get over the pig fucking episode, though. That was a first one too. I, that, that was that bold. was a rough one to start on. That you was guys. bold. I liked it. <laughs> I was like, what? Uh, but man. yeah. Um, so I think like uh, that. I feel like that could happen. It definitely feels like right now. So so I, I look at it in terms of like um, the neural probe stuff because that's what I'm more familiar with. 
like with Parkinson's disease, there's deep brain stimulation. Yes. Um, there, you know, there's other ways of moving prosthetics and stuff with uh, neural probes, which are electrodes you insert into the brain, and then you can use a com- a computer to like translate. Right. Um, like there's the an external spiking. an yeah. external device that, uh, and like it it actually is. It's using feedback from the brain and then it sends adjusting. Uh, yeah. yeah. But basically you think and you move a prosthetic. Right. And so so there are that's the whole point of like a lot of the field is to like figure out where things uh, where neuron spiking causes an external reaction and, and taking in uh, sensory information as well. Um, so speaking. T- so talking about it in terms of that, like we have come a long way with figuring that out. Like there are people wearing those prosthetics and benefiting from it mm-hmm. now. And deep brain stimulation and Parkinson's disease has been proven to be like there are videos of that, too, where people are shaking. You turn it on. They stop shaking. Um, what is so when when they turn on the the stimulator stimulator what is that is that um is that using um like an electrical pulse or is yeah it, yeah so yeah that's how um neurons work is they're electrochemical they yeah. send action potentials through like a singular cell um and then between cells it can be like electric or, or electrical or chemical um with the neurotransmitters that jump from cell to cell and activate the next cell's um electrical potential um, and so, yeah, so it's all electrochemical. Um, so you, you can send and receive once you're able to you know, <laughs> like translate right. those signals, right? Those neural signals. Um, and so it's like, it's interesting. So with Parkinson's, like they just send like these signals out and they don't know exactly how it works, but they know that it does. Yes. Yeah. And so there, there's that case. And then there's the case with the prosthetics where it, like it seems to be like a little bit better mapped out. Um, but it's still like, you know, there's still it's still rough around the edges. Um, so I do think like we're closer to this than people yeah. think. Like we're closer to like some parts of Black Mirror. Than right. People. And also, yeah, in 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 talking about addiction, being able to find the areas of the brain that are responsible for addiction and responsible for finding or, or making the connection like Um, Because one of the things with addictions that makes it so hard for people to, and this can be any kind of like drug addiction, it can be gambling or even food addictions, well, especially food addictions where um, you'll be triggered by some um, something in your environment that makes you um, want to go do the behavior. Uh, It can be emotional. It can be something like, um, you know, depression or anxiety. It could be simply smelling food or being at a casino and see, like hearing the the sounds of a casino, and then that'll um, and, and like obviously with with severe drug addictions, it's a much there's a stronger uh, physiological physical feeling um, to the addiction. But uh, it, it's it, I think like this rat study is showing us that we can interrupt that feedback loop of uh, of um, the the addictive uh, nature of a substance and then the response to a stimulus re- relating to that addictive sub- substance. Yeah, and I think what you said earlier about um, understanding that it is like a biological response is very mm-hmm. it's a smart um, uh, understanding of like the socio the sociological impact. Yes, um, it's kind of like when people. I mean, this isn't as well known, but like when people found out like that there is like a gene that. Uh, tends to occur more in people who are more violent mm-hmm. um so then you re- you do realize that these a lot of these are like on and off switches it's definitely more complex than that there's like a lot more going on but 
once you like have control over that, then you it's it's just how like pharmacological stuff works, right? It's like you there are receptors things bind to, and that causes this physical response that alleviates your headache, that does all these things, right? So that it's the same way, but it's just like different techniques used to manipulate these cells. So it could be like you know like pharmaceutical medicine that we are used to taking and comfortable with taking versus uh you know optogenetics right right stuff versus probes yeah i mean it is yeah uh pharmaceuticals do literally interact with your cells bind to them uh physically you know alter your and and uh pharmaceuticals that have to do with um you know say like um uh, mental health will also like physically interact with your brain so I, i know that certain certain things like um the uh uh the sort of a uh, cranial stimulation things where it's like the there's both like the um magnetic stimulation and the uh can be kind of creepy yeah the, uh there's transcranial uh yeah magnetic stimulation magnetic, TMS. Yeah, yeah tms and then that's but that's not the one there's also the um uh the electrical stimulation that's used for like depression yeah um and so it's like when you hear about those things it seems kind of creepy because it's like this physically you're like like it's all it's all physical yeah yeah so it's all like that's what that's what i mean like with the with taking drugs that like is something that is ingested that then causes a series of events right but in the same way those electrical triggers also cause those action potential potentials in the neurons yes so it is it does have to do with like receptor binding in one case and the other case it's just like stimulating and also chemical and electrical are in terms of the brain are just completely linked it's like very closely related because it's um the um the the neurotransmitter activity is what causes the electrical uh impulse yeah yeah, impulse exactly yeah so that the neurotransmitters work between synapses and or within a synapse which is between cells right so one cell sends its its message along through its its own body and then that causes neurotransmitters to be expelled from one cell hit the other cell and then cause another right. you know impulse. Yeah, so it is all very like closely linked and everybody is very complex and all these things uh each like disease disorder has like an optimal treatment. Right. And so it it depends on like the person and the disease the disorder, but it all it all is it is like you know turning switches. Yeah. But I it's think, just I think very it's complex. just yeah, it's like a Rube yeah. Goldberg machine or whatever. <laughs> like I I think and I think when people think about um like uh TMS or 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 like quote unquote electrotherapy, it brings to mind sort of the um, requiem for a dream thing where someone's like in a lot of pain or like the idea of, because there used to be, you know, psychology has gone under some pretty big changes in terms of uh, being a lot more humane. Um, and so there were, there were like bad practices like using sort of, but it was aversion therapy that is like the bad one where it's like you you try to get someone to like stop someone from, um, you know, being sexual by like shocking them, and that's not that's not really what what we're it's talking like about. It's like a punishment. Yes, no, exactly. that's that's yeah, that's not what we're talking about. What we're talking about is like literally like changing the way you think yes. by causing these. Because that's that's also like that's how we learn. And we were talking earlier about memories. Synapses can be like weak or strong, and 
the balance of that is necessary. So you want some synapses to weaken in order for you to be able to learn other things. Right. It's, it's plasticity. It's like it's how, how learn, learning works. Right. And so like there's like the short term way of like, you know, having these things triggered so that it changes like how you think like in the moment. Right. But then that change that should affect a change longer term in like how your brain functions. Right. Um, it's like it's like a water channel. So like if you have sort of these different channels and you're trying to get water to flow through them and that would be sort of a. Uh, pattern of activation in the brain if you have like one channel that's really bad like say like a, a bad habit like an addictive behavior or like um, a, a sort of depressive um, mental mantra or something um, that and it gets used a lot and then that sort of channel is going to get really deep that groove and then the water is going to want to flow through there yeah um, so if you can weaken that channel kind of like you know block it off then you can um, strengthen the other uh, neural networks, the other um, patterns of activation that are more desirable. Yeah, that's a really good way of putting it. Yeah, it's it, it's probably a over much overly simplified, but it's one way that helps me to think about it. Yeah. If you're wondering if there's a real life example of an eternal sunshine situation, there is, and it's a bizarre, tragic tale. You may be familiar with retrograde amnesia. It's often the subject of soap operas. You suffer a traumatic accident and forget everything before that accident. Anterograde amnesia is the flip side of that. After the traumatic event or brain injury, you are unable to form new memories. So you may have some memory of your past preserved from before the accident, but imagine what it's like to be unable to form new memories. Every day is the first day of your life, literally in a horrifying way. This is such a rare condition that each clinical case is notable. One such case is that of Clive Wearing. He was a brilliant musicologist and conductor before contracting a virus that attacked his central nervous system. The brain damage gave him anterograde amnesia. He was still able to remember certain things about his life, his love for his wife, certain old memories, and he could still play complex piano and organ pieces. However, his ability to form new memories lasts only about seven to 30 seconds. So he's living basically half a minute at a time. Every day he wakes up every 30 seconds. His diary is a terrifying glimpse into his reality. Pages and pages of frantic writing about waking up for the first time, over and over. Here's just a small sample. 8.31 a.m. Now I am really completely awake. 9.06 a.m. Now I am perfectly, overwhelmingly awake. 9.34 a.m. Now I am superlatively, actually awake. We'll be right back after a few messages. Do you dream of a healthier life, but education feels out of reach? Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School's Certified Natural Health Professional Program is the perfect entry point to gain foundational knowledge to empower yourself, your family, and your community to live healthier lives. Turn your passion into a career. Visit trinityschool.org for more info now. Asking the right questions can greatly impact your future, especially when it comes to your finances. So if you're looking for a financial advisor you can trust, certified financial planner professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org.
Had enough of those supplements that leave you feeling nothing? Symbiotica is your solution to great tasting all natural supplements that actually work. Crafted with premium plant based ingredients, their products have no seed oils, fillers, or artificial nonsense. It's just pure goodness in every pouch. Try them out and actually feel the difference today. Visit symbiotica.com and use code IHEART for 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Again, that's 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Go to symbiotica.com. That's C Y M B I O T I K A. So we're back. Uh, Paula V, I kind of want to talk to you a little bit more about your work. Um, what you do kind of goes over my head a little bit, <laughs> uh, admittedly, um, and, but it is really cool. We talked a little bit about it earlier where we established that um, using um, uh, the genetic algorithms, is it's not the genetics of an animal, it's that the algorithms themselves, these computer mo- models, have sort of a um, computational genome Um, and uh, you wrote to me um, something that when I read it um, I I think my ears just like started to implode (laughs) and and my eyes kind of shriveled and like as I was trying to understand Uh, you say you use an evolutionary algorithm to constrain biophysical parameters of different cell types in this overall large-scale model of the rat hippocampus Mm which it's, I mean, it's, I'm not trying to be glib here. That sounds insanely cool. And uh, from what you've talked about, it is super cool. So you, like we talked about earlier, you're breeding these computational models. Yeah. And then you have this new model and you're trying to match it to seeing if this new new model with like the new you compare all of them at the same time. I see. So you have a population and you're, um, you're like, I'm going to take the top Let's say you have a population of 100 and you're like, I'm going to take 100 models of 100 models. And you're like, I'm going to take the 10 best models, meaning the 10 that most America's top models. Thank you. I've been I've been Katie Golden. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And you take the the top 10 and you're like, I'm going to move that on to the next generation. Um, And so and then you have like random you could do it different ways. But basically you evaluate how good a model is by how closely its outputs match experimental values of these characteristics, which are, um, you know, input resistance, spike frequency adaptation, all these characteristics of neurons. Um, and so you're, you, you match these outputs. Um, the inputs change. That's what changes between each model. Um, and so you're just, it's just a way of exploring, tweaking the inputs in a more, in a faster, more efficient way. So you're like, I'm going to take the best ones. Mm-hmm. Some combination of that might be better than the parents. Right. Right. And so I'm not going to focus on the ones that sort aren't as like, good. Sort of like breeding dog breeds. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but more morally right. <laughs> so you're not, you're not to... taking a computer model and breeding it so that every time it sneezes, its eyeballs pop out of its skull? I mean, we could if, <laughs> if that what's, if that makes you feel powerful. Yeah. I mean, it kind of, you do sort of sound like the progenitors of a new computer race. Like, are you are you at all worried that they're going to start to like develop a consciousness, rise up? To, you know that that whole no rigmarole. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> not at all where it is. It's yeah. literally like you have to manually program. It's so tedious. Yeah, yeah. So it's like, um, and then yeah. So it's not. I don't know. And I didn't create it. It's a type of program that's been established that I'm just utilizing for my purposes. Um, But yeah, so I mean, that's the basis of it. Um, And you can apply this. It's a it's a technique. It's a process. It's a way of getting closer to the output that we want. Right. Um, Yeah. So that's 
That's basically it. Um, so you're also a stand-up comedian. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and now this is a pretty hypocritical uh, question coming from me, but um, you know, it it is kind of an interesting thing to me, like the like um, scientists getting into comedy and vice versa. Um, like, how do you feel like these two fields kind of influence each other? Like, does your um, your science, your research influence your comedy? Do you kind of like to keep them separate? Like, you know, like uh, party up front, business, business in, in the, the back. back or- yeah, kind of like that. Um, it definitely like helps to have. Um, so I, I love both. Um, and having like my school friends and having this more technical thing to focus on helps when I feel like too drowning in comedy. Yeah. Um, but I, I absolutely love comedy and I think it, it I think in general, like my education and the way that I think has informed my voice and my voice informs my comedy. Um, and so like now I'm trying to utilize my expertise and use that in my comedy. So I have like the web series that I'm doing, um, Dirty Science, and it's like on my YouTube, my Instagram. And I'm using that to like kind of spread med- uh, like scientific information, but through a comedic lens. And I think that helps me stand out. And so like people, people like you have like asked me to do this, mm-hmm. um, which is going to like you know, like give me more opportunities. Um, and, uh, and I do get booked on certain things because of my scientific background, but they want my comedic voice. They just like want someone who can like navigate both realms. Um, I would say my research is not informed. Like it's hard because like my comedy is like my personality. So it's like, I get along with people because of like how I, because of my charm <laughs> like I don't know so it's like it's weird to say that it influences but actually I do think it does because like I kind of look at presentations like sets mm-hmm. and so I'm like oh like I bombed this meeting but like <laughs> I killed that presentation after so like I kind of like look at it like that and I actually um recently it's really dumb because like I am not getting enough work done which is another way my comedy influences my research it's a it's, <laughs> is, a, it's a good procrastination tool it's it's amazing and it's also like it's ramping it's been ramping up for a while and it's really hard to balance two full-time careers um and so that's that's been really difficult but it did help me like win this poster award because it helped in my communication skills and like yeah. feeling more confident when I like wasn't as sure of something or well you know it's interesting because one of my first ever improv classes most it was uh, at UCSD, and most of the other students were grad students in uh, either science or um, a social science field um, or business. Not none of them like were really interested in. It. And at the time, I was not uh, thinking I was going into a comedy field. I was working doing uh, pharmaceutical e-learning. I wasn't like I yeah. was just like I need I need a break from <laughs> like talking about diabetes all day. So, yeah, uh, yeah, it is. Um, I think like improv especially is like a little bit more inaccessible because it requires a lot, a lot of money to take classes. Yeah. Um, but there are certain areas. I, I do think that we don't realize like there are a lot of comedians that come from privilege. Yeah. Um, more so than I think anybody wants. My friend Chris Adams, who's really funny, was talking about this. Um, it's more so than any of us are willing to admit because like we're allowed to have like we have a safety network and yes, so we're allowed absolutely. to take like career risks like this not saying that all comedians are um there are plenty of comedians that have come from like really difficult situ- tiffany haddish is like a prime example of someone who's like succeeded in the face of like yeah all this you know all these obstacles it's and just all this like adversity. it's not comedy is not like you're not automatically going to get a payoff from it so if you no. don't have like if you're if either you don't have your family as a safety net or like, you know, or like accrued wealth or something, you, you know, 
I mean, you're going to get punished for trying to pursue your dream because you don't have uh, that kind of like backup in case like. It also is like I know that a lot of my comedian friends are suffering like they are like poor. Right. Um, but it's like if shit hit, hit the fan, if they ended up in the hospital, like somebody would be there for yes, them. Yes, exactly. Know? Whereas I think that there are there are comedians who like there wouldn't be anybody for them like they would be they would be totally fucked. They would be truly fucked. Yes. Yeah. Um, and it's interesting to see like in different places, like in, in the Bay Area, like imp- a lot of improvisers, they're all tech people. So they have the time and the money to do it. Yeah. In India, they're all like tech and engineering people um, because they have the time and money and access to do it. Um, so it is like really interesting seeing like where people come from based on where they are and like um, what ac- what access they have. Um, I don't know why I'm saying all of this. What, no, no. <laughs> it's a, I mean, I, I think it's a really interesting point because I think that um, – it does kind of shape uh, what sort of the topics of what comedy is about. Right. So we, we have kind of a probably a more narrow scope of comedy that does come from like, um, you know, a lot of people who went to uh, like graduated from college and then they yeah. have, have this specific perspective. Yeah. Um, you know, people talk about like SNL is like they have like the Harvard people and right, the other right. people. Right. Yeah. It's kind of like that. But like, yeah, I'm trying to, in terms of how it is informing my comedy, I'm trying to incorporate more in my stand up specifically more of my perspective with um, science and engineering. And it's it's hard to find a way to like educate people. Sometimes I use it as a decoy to like have a punchline. Mm-hmm. Be like, look how smart I am. <laughs> this pussy joke. Like, you know what I mean? Like, and then that. You just slip that pussy joke in. Yeah. Like, with educate- <laughs> I mean, that's what I hope to do with this podcast is like we bait you in as it being a comedy pod or a, an educational we're like we're gonna educate you and then just a pussy joke yeah yeah, yeah. Get that right in there <laughs> yeah so that's kind of like kind of what I do um but I'm trying to do the opposite actually is just like because most of me is like the silly fun like weird just like a comedian that's yes. like that's me and then I try but like what I'm interested in is like all of these things that sometimes are it's hard for people to hear mm-hmm. um and so then I try to like slip that in there um I think it comedy can definitely take the edge off serious topics like yeah. unvaccinated children for example yeah and like um, mental health issues yes. like just all sorts of things yeah um and so yeah so and I'm, also like destigmatize so like because I, I feel like one of the one of the cool things about comedy is like it seems like most or m- at least many comedians have had to deal with some kind of mental health issue yeah and so that it's uh it's really destigmatizing because it's just talking about it like, hey, look, you know, I am just a person and then I have this thing. And like, you know, by kind of making it where you can you can sort of do a set on it or, or uh, yeah. have some humor about it, it. It's really kind of and I think it makes it a lot easier for other people to go like, hey, you know, it's like I have OCD, too. Like, hey, you yeah, know, I've done like I've done those weird things, too. Yeah. And it's also like finding the funny like makes people like, yeah, it definitely finds the community within it and like makes them relate and stuff. And it is like interesting, especially being um, like Indian American, like having family who's like more conservative or whatever, like be accepting of it. Yeah. It's just so much more validating because you're like, oh, like they can't. It's hard for them to reject like the truth. They can tell you not to talk about it, but they can't deny it. So it's it's hard. It's it's interesting seeing people come out of the woodworks and support you when you expect when like your whole life people have been telling you to stop talking about it <laughs> you know what I mean like but through a comedic lens they're like oh like this is like your truth it is funny like I feel this way too um and finally like it's channeled somewhere <laughs> yeah yeah but yeah yeah it, it it I think it kind of um it's a dis it's such a disarming 
kind of medium that it, it's both good for like like educating on like scientific topics, but also social issues. Like kind of like you know you you you're sort of it, it's people are um, they're they're disarmed. They're not their dukes aren't up. They're not like yeah. prepared to like sort of reject what you're saying off the bat because you know you're you're kind of like hey you know I'm, I'm gonna tell you a joke like this is a this yeah. is a positive interaction already and there and you're you're acknowledging your behavior yes and you're not just you know lashing out at other people you're right. like i'm this per-. like bill burr does a really good job of like like i like him a lot um he does a really good job of like he's like i'm like in my head i'm like angry and like racist and all these things but that doesn't mean that you have to continue to be that way you right, know what i mean right. like he's like like I always say like whenever I think like a, ra- a racist thought or like you know because we all have that programming in us and yeah. it's like just unlearning everything I'm like ah oh, my brain's dumb like yeah. I'm just like oh my brain did that stupid yes. thing I gotta gotta think about that and unlearn that um, yeah. so it's like it's a fun way of like acknowledging all these flaws that we all have and like not ostracizing people for it that's a really good way to put it it's it's like you're you're introspecting in a way that's safe because like in comedy you can make fun of yourself and think about all of your flaws without it feeling really sort of like self-loathing or judgmental. Yeah. It's more, it's like, you know, Hey, I'm, I do, you know, like, uh, every time I go to bed, I like stare at the stove for five minutes. Cause I'm worried for some reason the noms are going to be on suddenly cause yeah. I have OCD. And that's like, you know, instead of like being like, Oh, that's, that makes me weird or like crazy. It's like, it's, it's actually really funny when you yeah. think about it. Like, yeah. it, like when like, you talk like, like using humor to be like, yeah, like, no, I just did a really jerk ass thing the other day. Or I did like, yeah. like, I think my thinking is like really weird in this way. And then it's, I think, yeah, the key thing um, for any progress in any society is like observing and acknowledging what's happening. Yeah. And I think, yeah, doing that on an individual level means that, your heart is in the right place even if your mind sometimes isn't yeah (laughs) yeah I hope I also hope that um comedy can you know because we were talking about the the anti-vaccine movement and sort of these almost like and and it's the same thing with climate denial or and just like generally denying science exists that maybe comedy is a way to because I think people have this perception of science being this like very sort of like just a bunch of like, um, you know, stodgy old men in yeah. lab coats and, you know, they're totally serious. And and some of them are. I mean, of course, <laughs> yes, plenty of them Boss? are. But... No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> this is a hot mic. It's a hot mic. <laughs> um, but yeah, and, and this idea that it's this like really snotty, snobby kind of insular. Well, and again, that is sometimes true. Yeah. But uh, I think that having that outreach of comedy of researcher you know it's like it's so cool to me that you're a researcher and you're doing comedy because that makes it I mean uh, like I'm a dumbass just like you well, yeah, all, I just studied this one thing <laughs> yeah you're a dumbass who studies uh computational models that uh, of uh the rat hippocampus <laughs> yeah I'm a real dumbass with yeah. that shit I don't know what I'm doing <laughs> just do the next thing I tried different things I don't know well thank you so much for coming on this has been really really incredible and so uh it's really an honor to meet you and to talk to you because no (laughs) and just start laughing (laughs) you're just like oh come on that's crazy Um, yeah no it's an honor to meet you you're lovely (laughs) oh thank you i've literally done nothing for science 
Um, <laughs> but you're a wonderful person. Aww, and thank you're doing you. this. What are you thank talking you. about? This whole thing is a science. What do you mean? You're <laughs> on a science podcast. What the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> I've collected people's spit for science. There you go. And, and, but you're oh, doing this. It's and a, a science diar- outreach. It's and almost- a diarrhea monkey. A cotton tamarind that had diarrhea had to okay. take care of it. <laughs> a noble act. Yes, a noble act. Um, so, <laughs> but I do think outreach is the most important thing because uh, none of our shit will work if or get to people, and it, yeah. none of it will matter if policy doesn't change. And yes. policy is influenced by people who don't know shit about science. By me. Yeah, <laughs> and so we need people to influence it in a positive yeah. way. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, so, you got anything to plug? Uh, you mentioned some of your cool stuff. You're All of the things. Do it, do it, do um, it. I have Dirty Science, which is my web series, and you can find that on YouTube at youtube.com slash comedy. You can spell my name, P-A-L-L-A-V-I-G-U-N-A-L-A-N. And I'm at Pallaviganalan on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, um, and that's my website as well. I also run a couple comedy shows and have my own podcast. Um, so I run facial recognition comedy and oversharing comedy, and then facial recognition comedy has its own podcast as well. So those are my things. And you also do research. Yeah. How? What? I'm tired. How? You? Yeah. I imagine <laughs> so. Well, you can follow us uh, on uh, Twitter at CreatureFeetPod, not like feet as in gross feet, but feet, F-E-A-T. Really didn't think that went through when I was making that Twitter handle. <laughs> uh, there's CreatureFeaturePod.com, at CreatureFeetPod on Instagram. So it's, uh, you know, it's all out there. Uh, I'm Katie Golden, at Katie Golden on Twitter. I'm also pro-bird rights, um, or vice versa. Who's... Who's to say who's controlling whom in that situation? It's a, I, I pretend to be a bird on Twitter. <laughs> um, uh, and wait, your bird rights? Yeah, I know that thing. <gasps> wait, that's like a famous one. Yeah. Oh my God, that's <laughs> you? Yes. I've definitely like responded to your shit. Oh my God, I love this uh, this Jerry Springer twist at the end. What? I've that's been the bird the whole time. Cra- pro bird rights? Yes. Uh, it's uh, that's actually how I got into comedy. It's through through the uh, through, yeah, through bitch, the bird you channel. Have so many people. <laughs> Are you kidding me? <laughs> this is you. Yes. Holy shit! Forget everything I've said. She has four hundred fourteen thousand followers <laughs> and is hilarious. What's funny is that bird uh, personality I've made will always overshadow me as a human. Oh, 100%. Like, it'll, I'll never come close to that bird fame. Like, nobody no, nobody gives a shit who, like, Katie Golden is. Nobody cares. Oh, my God. It's I all cannot bird. believe this. This is I'm, totally changing my view of you <laughs> entirely. And you thought I was a serious person. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> well, thank you guys so much for listening. Uh, I feel truly privileged to have been allowed in your ear holes but really, seriously, I'm thankful for everyone who listens to this show. Um, combining comedy and evolutionary biology is kind of a weird, nerdy idea, and I'm super lucky to have listeners like you. Um, if you're enjoying the pod and want to help me out, please, please, please leave a rating or a view and subscribe. It really does help out immensely. Uh, thank, you, thank you so much, you guys. Uh, I'll be back in your ear holes again next Wednesday. I'm still reading these tweets. <laughs> <laughs> And thanks to the Space Cossacks for their awesome song, Exolumina. 
Do you dream of a healthier life, but education feels out of reach? Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School's Certified Natural Health Professional Program is the perfect entry point to gain foundational knowledge to empower yourself, your family, and your community to live healthier lives. Turn your passion into a career. Visit trinityschool.org for more info now. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hey, guys. Back at the playground again, huh? Yep. You know what this playground could use? A wine country. Heck, yeah. And some waves. So we could go surfing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> ah, love that. A redwood forest would be cool. I'm in. Ah, ski slopes. Let's do it. Um, can a girl go shopping? Yeah, baby. Wait. Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com.